I entitled tonight's talk, Relationship Status, It's Complicated. Tonight, the basis of my talk is about the fact that relationships have become so complicated in our society. But before I start, I want to tell you a little bit about uh, an event that we're going to be hosting here, a one-time event. We're bringing in a world-renowned psychologist, psychotherapist from Jerusalem. His name is Dr. Asael Romanelli. If you haven't had a chance to watch any of his videos, he's unbelievable. Uh, in, his name is Dr. Asael Romanelli. He's going to be here on August 18th for a special three-hour workshop. There's going to be a limited amount of people that are going to be allowed to attend it. He is, his work is transformative. So I just wanted to let you know about that. So let's get started with our talk tonight. I think that we can all agree that in our world today, in let's say what we're going to call the free world, things have changed. Things have changed completely. And because things have changed, there is what I would call an intimacy crisis. I believe that women's lib has done incredible things to the world. It's changed the world in every single way for the better besides for one way. There's one thing that has been changed for the worse as a result of this, what, what they called in the 70s, women's lib, and that is relationships. Marriage, love, long-term relationships have been changed completely. Today, we are afraid of intimacy. Yet, fascinatingly enough, we agonize over a lack of it. What better indication of this than our use of euphemisms to describe what should be a very intimate relationship. So it used to be that when two people were going out, they called it dating. Heaven forbid in our society for anyone to be dating. Dating was a very important word because if you're dating, it means that you are committed to another. And now it's not a commitment like the big M word, heaven forbid. We don't want to say it. Marriage. No, no, no one wants to say that word. It's too... Uh, too scary to say. But at least this process of dating allows us to know that there is somewhat, or at this level of the relationship, there's somewhat of an intimate relationship here. That, but what's happened in our world is we stopped dating. Today, we don't want to use these words because it means that we have to actually make that commitment. We'd rather swipe right and swipe left because that's much easier. When I, I set people up, the most common question after I set someone up today, what is my most common question that I get? Do you have a different? No, that's not even the most common question. The most common question. Now, I can set someone up on a date. They're already planning on going out. 
most common question is, so let me, let me just backtrack. I set you up on a date. The two of you are going out already. You're planning on going out. What would be the next question someone would ask me? Guy or girl? Huh? Guy or girl? Whatever. Right. Single. They're, they're already going out. This is all obvious. Oh, what should be the next question know. you ask that you would ask a matchmaker? Yeah. What do they look like? What do they look like? Yeah. Let's say you already saw a picture. Oh. <clears throat> what are they looking for? Eight times out of ten. This is my own survey because from my matches... Eight times out of ten on average, I get the following question. Do you have anyone else? <laughs> Isn't that what I said? <laughs> I need a lawyer. <laughs> what do you do? What do we do with a society that when they're actually even set up, the next question is, do you have anyone else? What's happened to our world? How did we become so removed from this whole idea of dating and real relationships to the point where we can't even see what we're in when we're in it? And my answer to that is, no, there's only one person in the world for you. That's my response. There is only going to be one person in the world for you. We have to stop thinking there's something better out there. We have to stop thinking that maybe the next one's going to be a little this, a little that. It doesn't matter. Every single person is going to have their nuances. Every single person is going to have something right about them and maybe something we don't like about them. But we're not looking for Mr. Right. We're looking for Mrs. Right for me. We need to find the person who's right for us. And yet, there's going to be some nuances that are going to be better or worse about that particular person. That's a reality. And you know what? That's okay. Now, someone who is constantly looking for the next person, there will be a number of reasons. I'm not going into all of the... the I'm not here to psychoanalyze your relationships here tonight. But what I'd like to just give you is a couple basic ideas behind why someone would be doing that. The first thing is that it's a society. It just become a thing that people do. So that's a really easy thing to fix. You just stop doing that. And then that's it. I was, uh, I used to like watching the, they used to film, the Rebbe used to stand for hours on Sundays giving out dollar bills to people. And they would film every interaction. And it's amazing to see because people would have these five and ten second moments with the Rebbe and there was just amazing interactions and, and discussion. So I used to watch these interactions just out of curiosity to see you know, people coming to this great rabbi, what are they asking, just to kind of get a, a glimpse into some of the things that were going on. So one time I was watching and I see a young woman approach the Rebbe and you could see that she's downtrodden and she's sad. And she turns to the Rebbe and says to him, I'm not a good person. And you could see in her face that she's waiting in her few seconds for the Rebbe to respond. She's waiting for like, 
this great sage that is going to give her this incredible advice that is going to change her life forever. He's going to have all the right answers. Everything's going to be perfect. And the Rebbe is going to set me on my way. We'll be back after a quick break. Are you tired of swiping right on every dating app out there and still getting nowhere? Are you convinced that you'll forever be alone, surrounded by nothing but uh, cats and empty takeout containers? <laughs> Hi, I'm Aliza Ben Shalom, the host of the new show, Jewish Matchmaking, which you can find on Netflix. And I'm the love rabbi, Rabbi Yisrael Bernath, and we're inviting you to join us for Matchmaker Matchmaker. Each week, we'll answer one of your pressing relationship questions, from how to get over your ex to how to deal with your partner's annoying habits. So if you're ready to laugh, uh, cry, or maybe even find love, then tune in to Matchmaker Matchmaker, and it's available now wherever you listen to your podcasts. So the rabbi looks at her and smiles and says in Yiddish, you're not a nice person. And so she shakes her head and he says, so be nice. (laughs) Sometimes just calling the thing, calling it out and saying, yes, this is me. I have gotten into what society has created. I am a sheep in a world that has told me that I should just swipe to the next one, to the next one, to the next one, and I'm just going to base my entire relationship status on a picture that may or may not be good. Most of us hate pictures of ourselves. So why would you think anyone else would have a good picture if you don't have a good picture of yourself? So we're basing it all on a picture. We're, all, we're basing it all on just next one, next one, next one. Do you have someone else for me? So sometimes we have to just take a step back and say, that doesn't work. That's not going to work. I'm not saying that no one has actually gotten into a long-term relationship. But it's not conducive to long-term relationships. It's not creating long-term relationships. On the contrary, I think it's doing the opposite. It's creating where I just want to see what's the next thing. It's almost feeding an emotional desire that we have to just move on from the next to the next to the next. So as a result of this, we stopped using the word dating, and now it became the word going out. We're going out. I go out all the time. Today, when I left my house to come here, I was going out. Today, when you left, wherever you were leaving to come here, you were going out. I mean, essentially, every single time you walk from one door that's inside to another door that's outside, you are going out. And you, you, most of the time, you're going out with your favorite significant other. It's called yourself. Nobody can be as good to you as yourself. The ultimate euphemism is today 
I see it so, I hear it so often. Somebody recently just said, Rabbi, I want to tell you, this person that I met, we are now seeing each other. We're seeing each other. And I'm, I'm saying, well, that's funny, because I see her also. I see her all the time. I see all of you now. Does that mean that we're all seeing each other? What does that mean? How removed from reality are we going to get? Like, what's the next step? Now that we're all seeing each other, like, how can we just, like, now we're just going to, um, we're going to vibe each other. You know, Rabbi, (laughs) two of us are vibing. Or, or, you know, we are... um, we are uh, PMing each other. Private message. That's it. You know, uh, I'm, I'm PMing this girl. So, oh, oh, so that means, I guess, that you're... Like, how, how long? Like, what's the next level? I don't know. Like, wh- what is this shocking and difficult idea of just calling it that we're actually committed there's, I'm, we're not saying that we're getting married. We're just saying that we're dating, that we are committed to one another. No, 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 because it could be there's someone else better out there. And as long as there's someone else out better out there, I don't want to really make a commitment now. We are an abused society. This all has a real effect on us. It has an effect on us to the point where we don't even realize it's having an effect on us. And if I could do one thing tonight for you without having to shock you to the core, I want to shake you up a little bit. And I want you to think of your internal narrative and ask yourself real questions. What is it that I am really looking for in my life? What am I really looking for? What do I want? For example, if you are extremely career-oriented, good on you. But it may be that at this point in your life you don't have enough time to be also relationship-oriented. It's okay. What I want you to do is just call it out. Right now, dear me, dear God, dear whoever, dear however, I am focusing on my career and that's okay for me right now. But what happens is we try to do everything. We think that we can give 100% to everything and as a result, we get 100% of nothing. So when we just say, Right now in my life, I am completely career-focused. 100% of my time and energy is being given to my career. And as a result, I don't have 100% for a relationship, which really needs my 100%. So maybe at another time, I will have 100% for my relationship. And that'll be a time that I'll be able to have a relationship. But what ends up happening is because we're not calling it out, we, we just stay in this blah, blah stage 
for our entire lives. And we get to a point where we're already, I don't know how many years, and we look back and say, where have these years gone? Well, these years have been good years. Most of us have been successful during these years. It doesn't mean just because we're not in a relationship that we're not successful. It just means that we've been focused on something that's really important to us and it wasn't a relationship. Again, it's your life, it's your choices. No one said you have to do that. It's okay. But what's more important is calling it and saying, this is what I'm doing so that at some point you can look back and say, wait, I have spent the past five years focused on my relationship. Maybe it's time I start focusing on something else in my life. Okay, good. My relationship is okay. I mean, my, my career is okay. Now let's focus on something else. Every so often, I get those calls. And it's either a call from a mom or it's a call from a particular individual. And I know the mom calls are whatever. I'm not going to talk about the mom calls. I get mom calls. Hello. I heard you make miracles. Do you have anyone for my daughter? I get them a lot now. Because the moms, they're reading my, uh, my columns in the Canadian Jewish News. So they think that... Uh, <laughs> they're like, you have very good advice for everyone. Now help my daughter. So... Every so often I get a call from a young woman and you can hear the frantic, the franticness on the other line. I'm not, you know, for those of you who have heard me before, you know I'm an equal opportunity offender. So I'm not only going to focus on women, but it happens to be that it's more, more, than, more, more women than men. And you hear like, I have to find someone now. That's basically what they're saying. I mean, in other words. And I say to them, when was your 30th birthday? I'm using this as an example, and I'm not here to point fingers at people who are around their 30th birthday. That's not the point. What I want to say to this is that if you don't do this consciously, it's going to creep up on you. You don't want to get to that point where you're making frantic phone calls, where you don't know what to do with yourself, where you're just taking the next person that just moves. Well, yeah, he's got a nose. That's okay. So the first step is being conscious, saying, this is where I'm at in my life right now. And maybe in a different stage, I'll be somewhere else. The Talmud talks about a lot of different things. And it also talks about how you should search for a wife, fascinatingly enough. The Talmud does not speak about women searching for men, but only men searching for women. A lot of people would think because the Talmud was written in a male chauvinist world, it's not true. The Talmud believes that it's the man that must search out the woman and not the woman searching out the man. That is not normal. It's the man that needs to search out. How does the Talmud describe searching out a woman for marriage? Sorry, I'm using the big M word. The Talmud says you must search her out like you lost 
something valuable. Anyone ever lose their cell phone? How did you look for that phone? How did you look for it? What did you do? What didn't you do while you were looking for it? If you ever lose a ring, a value, or something else of value, how did you look for that? That is supposed to be how you look for your significant other. Like you lost something. And the Talmud has great reason for why it should be that way. It's because at birth, the two of you were one and you were split in half. This is real. And your souls came down into this world. And so you're not searching for someone who may or may not exist. You are finding someone who you were separated with at birth. And that's why that person, when you find them, they're going to be familiar to you. They're going to be obvious to you because you knew them before. You're finding something you lost. You're not searching for something that may or may not exist. Finding something that you lost has a very different feeling than searching for something that may or may not exist. If you know you lost it, if you know that it's really there, once again, being conscious, that mindset, you know that it's there. How many people come to me? There's nobody out there for me. Okay, you're right. I agree with you. There's no one out there for you. If that's how you think, if that's how you feel, I can't change that. If there's no one out there for you, don't clog up the system. Don't try. Just sit at home like a recluse, binge watch Netflix, and happy birthday. Go out and change your mindset and say that I'm finding something I lost. Not something, but I'm finding someone that I lost. I lost that person. I know that when I find them, it's going to be right. Now let's get to, hold on a second. Because you're like, yeah, that's right. When I find them, it's going to be right. Here's the problem. The problem is two things. Number one is in our society, a lot of us have become desensitized. So we don't know if it's true that you had the great fortune or you currently have the great fortune of not of being, um, not have ever been in a relationship or being you know, separated as maybe the very religious do, you know, from the different sexes, then maybe you would have a very keen way of seeing. So when the person, when you found that person, you'd be like, yes, this is it. It's obvious. The problem is today is we've become so desensitized to relationships because we're all swiping right and swiping left and we're doing whatever else that there is and everything is just so nonchalant that we don't know what's right and wrong. We cannot, and again, I'm generalizing, I have no choice but to generalize because we're here in a group, we're here in a room, but we don't know what's right and wrong anymore. We don't know who would be right for us. So we can't trust ourselves. So I ask you what I think is a profound question for yourself. How would you know when you find the right person that they're the right person? How would you know? Are they going to have a sign on you, on them? I am your other half. That, that would be easy if they came with a sign. 
I was driving down the 87, and there was a big billboard that, that said, if you're looking for a sign, here it is. <laughs> it was advertising the sign. It was good. It was good, a good way of advertising the billboard. They wanted someone to put their ad there. <laughs> you have to ask yourself, how would you know? And this is a fascinating thing because it also happens to people who are in relationships currently where they're not sure. I see this a lot today. You finally find that person, but you're not sure, do I want to make this step? Do I want to make that commitment? How do you know? You don't know. How would you ever know? Well, there's a couple of different things that you can do. The first thing you can do is I actually uh, put together a little questionnaire that I'm happy to send to you after this class. If, and if you haven't had an opportunity to do it before, it's a four-part questionnaire of which it helps you put together a very clear list of the person you're looking for. Once you have that list, if you don't want to go through my whole questionnaire, you can think of three things I can't live with, three things I can't live without. That's also a really simple, that's a simplified version of my questionnaire. If you have those things. But the most important thing is before you meet someone, you take that, you write it down, and it's clear. This is the person that I am hypothetically looking for. You fold that paper up and you file it somewhere, or you put it on your phone, or you send it to yourself as an email, and you write on it, you know, something that you'll be able to easily search in your email so you can find it. And then when you're in the relationship, you write a list of all the things you like and don't like about the person. And then you compare it, you pull out your old list and compare it to the list that you wrote before you got into a relationship. And then you can clarify, it's the, the version of you before you were here, and now the version of you that you're in the relationship. And you see, is this person the person I was looking for? So that's one way of doing it. But let's say you're already in the relationship, how do you know? How do you know this person is good for me? So something else you can do is you can do exactly that same thing, but instead of, instead of looking at if it's simil the similarities, what you do is you write a list of who you are and you write a list of them and you look on paper and you can see, can, do you think these two people can be in a relationship together? People say opposites attract. It's not true. Men and women by nature are opposites. We don't need to have opposites to attract. Attraction is similarities. It's similarities that are gonna attract. Now there are different types of similarities that will attract. For example, I'm not saying this all the time, but most of the time, you'll find in a long-term relationship, one will be an extrovert and the other one will be an introvert. It's a simple, for, for simple reasons. Because if we're both extroverts, we're never gonna be in the house. And we're both introverts, we're never going to get out of the house. So you need to have both. It's, you need to have that balance. And the point is, and again, going back to Kabbalah and going back to the Talmud, is that we are two halves of a single whole. So together, we're supposed to make a full unit. So therefore, we should have the complementary elements of the other person. What one person has, the other person shouldn't have. And what the other person has, the other person shouldn't have. Because if we're both so similar, 
like a brother and sister relationship, heaven forbid, that's terrible, even, to, even the thought of it. But if, we, we, if we're so similar like that, then we're not going to be able to complement each other and we're going to get into fights because we're, we're trying to do the same thing. You ever been on a committee with someone who's really similar? You butt heads because you're similar. That's normal. And it gets confusing and it gets difficult. So let's go back to seeing someone. It's become part of casual conversation. Are you seeing anyone? I see, I'm seeing all of you. I know that one of these days, somebody's gonna say to me, I'm seeing a very, very, very nice person. And I'm gonna say, can I see her too? What, what's with the euphemisms? Why the euphemisms? Probably because if you identify the relationship as an attachment, if you consider this a commitment, if you think of this as an investment of yourself in a relationship, and then the relationship ends, it's going to hurt too much. You're going to have to say to yourself, this relationship fell apart. And that's too painful. So instead, what do we say? Oh, I'm seeing someone. And that way, if it doesn't work out, okay, so now we're not seeing each other. It sounds a lot less painful than having to be in a committed relationship and then you turn around and you're not in a committed relationship. So we put this buffer around our relationship to keep a distance, to prevent it from becoming too painfully intimate. Now, obviously, intimacy implies vulnerability. Becoming vulnerable. If you're going to be intimate, you're going to allow someone to see parts of yourself that you'd rather not have people see. You're going to allow someone into that part of your existence, into that part of your mind, into the part of your heart that you yourself are not exactly comfortable with. And you don't know how the other person is going to treat it. And you don't know how it's going to feel to have someone else scrutinize that part of you that you're a bit ashamed of. But that is the entire meaning of the word relationship. That's what a relationship really is. The whole idea of relationship is that we stop being alone. And the way you stop being alone is if all of you, particularly that part of yourself that you're sensitive about, is no longer alone. And if you can share that with another person, if you're able to share that with another person, you have ended your loneliness. And I would say, to add to that, that that is the most important part of a relationship. 
If somebody said to me, what is the single most important thing, reason why somebody who's single should get into a relationship? I would say for one reason and one reason only. To end loneliness. Now, if that is really the only reason to get into a relationship, think of all the things people are looking for. The superficial things people are looking for when they're looking for another person. What is really what they're looking for? They're looking for someone to love them unconditionally. That's really what they want. Everything else is superficial. Everything else is foolish. Oh, I'm attracted to this kind of person. This guy says to me a couple days ago, I'm only interested in women with olive colored skin. How do you decide that? Like, I don't, do you wake up one morning and you say, you know, I've got this vision board and in my vision board I have examples of women and each woman has a different colored skin and I've decided that I am only, only attracted to someone with olive colored skin. What does that mean? What's happened to our world? And the vainness only becomes more vain because this idea of I'm only attracted to this or I'm only attracted to that, it's not true. It's not true because if you really get down to it, you're going to find there was a, a young woman who had a very specific idea of what she was looking for. And I remember setting her up with a couple of people who were really fit that, and she hated them all. So finally I turned to her, I said, I, I don't know if you're really, if, I don't know if you're really right about what you're looking for. I don't know if you're really being truthful with yourself. Well, she's in a very committed relationship right now. Almost, she's about to get engaged, and the person that she is in the relationship with is nothing like she was looking for. Like, absolutely nothing. I would say, to a, to a certain extent, the exact opposite of everything she wanted. And, and, I, and I, recently I was talking to her and I said to her, I remember our conversations. What happened to you? I don't understand. What happened? What happened to, no, I can't have a guy like that. You know, Rabbi, she'd say, Rabbi, I know that I'm being vain, but I, I, I can't do this. I can't live with somebody like this. So what happens? I said, I don't know. He grew on me. Because the truth is, we're not looking for any of that. I always say that if the singles, I'm sorry to use that term, but if the singles knew what was really important in a long-term relationship, they'd have a whole different list. Because most of what people are looking for does not matter, not even a little bit, none. It does not matter at all in a long-term relationship. Most of the things that we're so stuck on I have to have this kind of person and this kind of this and this kind of that actually makes zero difference when it comes to a real long-term relationship. Wait, like what kind of thing? We'll, 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 we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. For now, use your imagination. I don't want to go and start giving you ideas in your head. I don't want to add more things to the things that are already there. <laughs> huh? Intimacy. Intimacy is supposed to be an antidote to loneliness. 
And I think it would be safe to say that with all of our social skills and with all of our partying, at the end of the day, we're basically a lonely people. Intimacy means that you become attached. You become joined. You belong together. There are difficulties. There's embarrassment. But it's a shared embarrassment. Whatever happens after that connection takes place, it's shared. It brings you closer together, not further apart. Intimacy means loyalty. Loyalty to an identity. If we run away from the identity, then we're ruining the relationship. And we're undoing what is most precious to us. If we abandon that sense of identification, the next thing that begins to suffer is our sexuality. For most human beings, at some stage in life, sexuality cannot and will not exist without intimacy. Rarely do you find a human being who prefers to separate the two. And certainly, I hope at least, not a sensitive human being. Sexuality, properly understood, is connected to intimacy. Intimacy means that you put aside this fear of exposure, that you overcome this resistance to being known, and you allow a person into that part of your life that is maybe not so comfortable. And then maybe you've entered into intimacy. It's very hard. We have a lot of blockages. We have a lot of barriers that we put up in front of ourselves in order to not get our, let our heart get broken. Most of us have had at some point our heart broken. So as a result, we become a little more thick-skinned. It's not because we do or don't want to. It's because that becomes the reality. We become thick-skinned because life has served us that whatever. And as a result, we have to become thicker. <coughs> And stronger. But stronger is not the opposite of vulnerable. And stronger is not the opposite of intimate. You see, if you're going to constantly put up these barriers, what happens? You never meet someone. Not only do you ever meet someone, I'm thinking about a lot of people who I see, let's say, I'm just using this as an example, don't shoot me for it. I see people who, let's say, end up in serious relationships with someone of a different faith. I'll tell you how that happens. At least it makes sense to me. Because they said in their mind they're never going to marry that person. So their guard is down. And so they meet someone and the guard is still down. I'm never going to marry them. And all of a sudden they fall in love. But they're never going to marry them. But they fall more in love. But they're never going to marry them. All of a sudden... They meet somebody who's Jewish. Oh my gosh. This could be the person. This could be it. Yes, we're two halves of a whole. The person I've been waiting for. This is it. It finally happened. The guard is like a million guards. All the way up. Because there's so much pressure on that. It's never going to work. So with the things that are not supposed to work, we have our guard down. And with the things that are supposed to work, we have huge guards up. 
And as a result, it doesn't work. We become self-fulfilling prophets. The issue is that as a result of being in these relationships, we put so much pressure on them that there's no way for them to work. See, people that I set up are always hesitant. And even after they agree to go out, they spend the next three days before the date, oh, whatever, before they see each other, I'm sorry. Whatever you call it. Can't even keep up anymore. Figuring out why it's not going to work out. And so they go on the date, and guess what? It doesn't work out. They literally become a self-fulfilled prophet. They said it wasn't going to work out. Rabbi, it's never going to work. I know it's not going to work. You said it's not going to work. It's not going to work. When can we become vulnerable in the right time and not vulnerable in the right time? There's a time to put our guard up. There's a time to be strong. There's a time to not be vulnerable. And then there's a time to be vulnerable. There's a time to let our guard down. We have to allow the vulnerability to happen so the intimacy happens. Otherwise, the relationship's never going to evolve. It's never going to go past step one. And then there's the fact that we go from one to a hundred in an hour. I'm not going to go into that part, but I'll just say one word or one phrase. It's called physical touch confuses love and lust. So I promised you tonight that I would talk about relationship status. It's complicated. I think I've mapped out the complications that a lot of us are having. I'm pretty sure that through some of my examples, you've been able to look within and see a part of your life that's there. What I'm going to ask you to do now is to just let it, let it sit. Just kind of, we're going to take about two minutes of quiet. I want you to let it land. You can take out a pen in front of you, write down a nugget, something you took out of what I just said, something that resonated with you, something you're going to take home. After we're done with these two minutes, I'm going to go into another part, a small part of my talk. And after that, and you can, um, I'm going to go into questions and answers. And I'm going to say this again. During your two minutes, you're also welcome to pass around the bowl and put in your anonymous questions. So let's take our two minutes. I'm just going to repeat the question so that everybody can hear it. I think it's a very good question. Before I said that you are looking for your other half, which, like Yonah's saying, would imply that you're not complete. And what she's saying is that if you're not complete, that there's this kind of conversation that people are having that if you're not complete with yourself, then there's no space for someone else. And it's a fa fantastic question. And I'm gonna answer the question in two parts. The first part I'm gonna say is that we're not saying that you're, you have a low self-esteem. 
What we're saying is that you should see that there's something missing in your life. So what ends up happening is there's two parts to you. There's the part of you that is comfortable within your own skin. But there's also part of you that says, I am not the best, the best version of myself that I could be alone. There's a better version of myself. God, the world, life, intended there to be a better version of myself. And that version of myself can only be with someone who I can share my life with. It's hard because there is this dichotomous way of looking at the world. Like, right? And it's not saying that you have a low self-esteem. It's not saying that you need someone. It's saying that you're not complete without them. That you, with all your success, with all of your greatness, with everything that you can contribute to the world, that is not even, even that, even at full capacity, the perfect version of you alone, that is not the perfect version of you that the world intended for you to have. There's a better version than even that, of your best version. That's what we're saying. So we're saying be the best version of yourself. And then find someone who's the best version of themselves. And together, you're going to become the power couple. Anyone else want to share? Any questions? Any thoughts, comments, processing? Probably don't you get, when you're fixing some people, they tell you, oh, there's no chemistry. Yeah, so I get that a lot. So the question is, when I'm fixing up people, don't I get, oh, there's no chemistry from the beginning? I always say, I wish I had a way that I could give people like a little something that they can put on their back for a date, and all of a sudden, in the middle of their date, there's like a little spark that shoots up from their back, and kind of like a little firework kind of like explodes right over their head, and like, boom, there are sparks. We have to come to grips with the idea that a lot of us, society has desensitized us to that, what is supposed to be the chemistry or sparks. And most people, and I hear this more and more, and I wouldn't know this if I wasn't setting people up and talking to people about their relationships and talking to a lot of singles and talking to a lot of people who are newly in relationships. I wouldn't know this. But I, you have to take my word for this because I don't know how many people are, pub- are publicly speaking who have the, the, the experience that I have been fortunate to witness and speaking to people in the beginning of relationships. More than not, I hear, it took time to evolve. Not, we knew at first sight. Everybody who's married 20 years can say, ah, oh, I knew right away. Shut up. That's easy to say. You talk to people who are in the beginning of relationships, it doesn't happen right away. You have to allow it to evolve. You have to give it time. People who are like, okay, next one, next one, next one. They're going on all these first dates. They're not giving it the time that it needs to evolve. To, to most people, because of that desensitization, we're not having that instant chemistry. The chemistry maybe happens to a certain level if you're in touch with it. But in general, we're not having it like we used to. So therefore, we have to just, again... Like I said in the beginning of tonight's talk, we've got to just call it out and say it's not what perhaps we thought it was going to be like. It's not this. It happens. There are a few people who are lucky enough to have that instant moment. 
but it's more rare than ever before. Yeah. That's a very good thing. It's a very, it's a very, it's a very good point. What you're, I'll just repeat that. A lot of people who are talking chemistry, she says, are talking about lust. And that's true. There's a lot of people who are looking for lust. The problem is, what's going to happen in 20 years from now? If you want a long-term relationship, lust is not going to get you very far. Maybe it'll get you as far as a week or two, but that's about it. Or maybe two hours. That's how long a movie is. Yeah. What is it called? The Road Less Traveled. The Road Less Traveled, traveled by Scott Peck. Thank you for the yeah, recommendation. I've never read it, but thank you. Oh, it was informational and touches exactly yeah. what this lady mentioned. Thank you. Well, okay, so let's... Any, any, any other... Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I'm just curious as to what you described earlier. You said there is a person for you, there is a one. So where do you stand on... They're actually being a person who meets all of our needs and we meet theirs, them existing, as opposed to it being an actor, I choose to be with this person, therefore I'm going to give him my all in order to... It's a great question. I'm just going to repeat the question. So how do you differentiate between there's a person out there who's the one and I have to go and search and give that out my all? So I think that that is exactly the way that we should compartmentalize it. We should say, the person exists. So I'm not just going to be shooting darts in the dark. I am actually looking for someone who really exists. There's someone out there is the complement of my soul. They're really there. And you know what? Maybe this will give a, bring out a little of your compassion. They're waiting for you. They're out there waiting for you. You are keeping them waiting because you're not spending enough time looking for them. Do you have any sympathy for this person who's waiting for you? Trying to elicit a little bit of your compassion. And the other, the other half of it is you have to go out and look. You can't expect they're going to knock on your door. It's not like the movies. I know we've become so attached to the romantic uh, comedies and the romantic dramas, but it's not like that. It's real life. And real life is much, much better than that anyway. You don't want that. And just to follow up to that, is there theoretically more than one? Is it a question of two people coming together and making a choice? Is it a destination? So, or is it so is there, the question is, that? it's a good question. Is there more than one? Is it predestination or is it making the choice? So, I am going to answer it specific to you. There's a lot of different answers. The Talmud says there's seven different soulmates. I'm not going to go into all the, the, that. If you want, I can, one day I can give you the whole Talmudic disposition on this, which is fascinating all in its own side, its own right, but it's not. I'm going to go right to the point. The point is that the moment you're under the chuppah, I'm just, I know it's scary, the big chuppah word. The moment you're under the chuppah, that C, phlegm, H, the chuppah, the moment you're under the chuppah, you are soulmates and you're two halves of a whole that have united. So until then, you can decide, you can question, you can do all of that. So yes, it is two people making a choice, but then you become soulmates. 
That is my own interpretation and my own view based on my studies and based on how I see it. And I think it's important, and it's a great question that you asked, and I think it's really important that we see it this way. Because then, the problem is, is that if we don't see it this way, then we're like, always there's someone better out there. This is not my soulmate. I know God intended, look, me. I'm the greatest thing that ever happened since sliced bread. So, <laughs> God didn't intend for me to be with uh, Schmendrick. <laughs> That's terrible. That's not... No, you have to be active. You have to make that choice. And once you make that choice, that person becomes your soulmate. Wait, does that mean that people shouldn't divorce No. Like, divorce is a, divorce is a whole thing. You can be married to your soulmate and find out that you can't be married, which means you can be soulmates that were divided at birth, but because of nurture, because you met each other at 30-whatever or 40-whatever or 20-whatever, whenever time you met each other, those years before, it could be that for whatever reasons, you can't live together. That has nothing to do with not being soulmates. That's a different conversation, and I'm happy at some point to talk about what divorce teaches us about marriage, and I think that would be uh, a very, very helpful for some of you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on, because um, I have a bunch of questions in the bowl that I want to get to, and I want to just get to the last part of our talk tonight. I actually I got a question... In my, in my email uh, a couple of weeks ago. And when I was preparing tonight's class, I thought it would be interesting to read this question to you and the answer that I, that I, uh, that I gave the person. So I just want to tell you, I, uh, I took out any parts that would be identifying to who the person, I did not ask the person to, to put this here. So I just felt like, it's, I just made the question a little more general. It's not as specific. The person had written a much longer question than this. And it wasn't as specific as this, so I'm just, I changed it around. That's why you have the three dots there in the beginning of the question. But you have the basic idea of what the person asked. The person says in the following, I am happy in my relationship, and things are getting quite serious. But there's one nagging doubt at the back of my mind. This is the first real love in my life. And I'm worried that maybe I'm so happy because I've never experienced anything else. I have nothing to compare her to because I've never been in this type of relationship before. Maybe I would fall for any girl who would give me a second glance. I feel that perhaps before I commit, I should see some other girls with my girlfriend's permission, of course. Then I will know for sure if this is real or not. Isn't that a good idea? Now I'm going to give you my answer. This is my, this is my, this is my actual answer. Um, I did not edit my answer. I understand your logic. If you were looking to buy a car, it would be silly to jump at the first model that catches your eye. You would compare prices and test drive a range of different makes before buying. So shouldn't you do some comparative shopping before settling on a life partner? In fact, you may feel it is even more important to shop around for love than it is for a car. A car you can trade in if you're not satisfied, but a wife? While this line of thinking may sound reasonable, there's a major flaw in the logic. There's a world of difference between a car and a potential wife. For one, cars don't like jewelry. But more importantly, cars don't have feelings. 
Your partner does, and so do you. Once feelings are part of the picture, a whole new dynamic is introduced. What I'm calling emotional connection. Because emotions are involved, seeing two people at once is not the way to go. It won't work for you, for your partner, or for the possible third party. So I'm I'm giving three reasons. Number one, for the third party, it's unethical. Would you tell someone that you're only entering a relationship with them to test if another relationship is real or not? If you would, you're mad. If you wouldn't, is that fair to them? There's nothing wrong with a used car, but people have feelings and don't like to be used. Number two, for you, you can't be objective. When you drive a car, it doesn't change you. You can walk away and test drive another car. And you'll be able to objectively analyze and compare the two. I have never heard of someone who needs time to get over a car before they try another one. But with human beings, it's different. A relationship is an emotional investment. You have shared a part of yourself with another. While in the midst of one relationship, you're simply not available to anyone else. You cannot be truly objective. The way you will look at the second person will be colored by your feelings for the first. So what, you will, ha- what will you have achieved by seeing someone else? And number three, for your partner. People can't be evaluated. When buying a car, we want the best one on the market. If we can afford a better, newer model, we would not settle for less. But a life partner, a human being, can't be given a market value. Relationships cannot be compared. Each one is a universe unto itself. The question, could I do better, can only apply to objects. But with real people, the only question you need to ask is, is the person a good person? Do I want to be in this person's universe? Can we grow together? If yes, stay there. If not, move on. Don't spend your lifetime wondering if someone is better around the corner. Rather, find someone who wants to be the best person in the world for you and be the best person in the world for her. If together you make that pledge and work hard to keep to it, you'll be on the road to true happiness, no matter what model car you drive. I just wanted to bring that out for you. I think that, I hope it it shared some light on some of the ideas that I spoke about tonight. Now, we're gonna go into the question and answer period of of my talk. For you extroverts, I know it's very easy for you to just ask questions. But for you introverts, I have this bowl, so please feel free. Once I take the bowl, it's not going to be so anonymous anymore. So please uh, take, your, uh, take this opportunity, pass around the bowl. Introverts, put in your questions. And extroverts, you're welcome to ask them out loud. <coughs> that way there's something for everyone here. So, any questions before I get into this bowl? No extroverts here? Yes. What's your name? Yeah. Hi, about what I see is silly questions about the soul. Okay. Practical questions. Okay. Is this ever risk free? I think your answer is. Is it ever risk free? If I could give you an insurance policy for your relationships, 
I would be a very poor man. I think that it, that's not the way to look at it. And I'm ju just being honest with you. So you don't say, is it risk-free? Because it's not a car, and it's not an insurance policy. It's a real person. So are you risk-free? Right, exactly. So why would you expect someone you're going to be in a relationship with to be risk-free? No, but I knew the answer. Like, right. Um, so the lack is how do you mitigate So how do you mitigate the risk? And that is a really great question. You mitigate the risk by first starting without lies. That's the first step. Very often I see a lot of people in relationships starting with lies. Start without lies. Be yourself. Be real. Then, once you're in a serious relationship... You must, must have someone, a third party, especially for the beginning of your relationship that you speak to. I actually wrote recently 10, 10 tips for newly engaged couples. And you can find it online. Just type in my name with 10 tips for newly engaged couples. You'll find it. It's on CBC's website. And in that list, I talk about 10 things that I think that people that are in serious relationships should really, should, should do and consider. And, and one of them is, I think that you have to have a third party. And you have to be open and honest with that person. And you have to be able to have someone who is not in your relationship to help you and guide you. One of the things that I started a number of years ago, so I was standing at a chuppah. Thank God I've had the opportunity as a rabbi to, to perform a lot of ceremonies. And I was standing at that chuppah, I'll never forget it. And I was holding the glass of wine and I was about to make the blessing. And I look up at this beautiful couple, and I think to myself, what right do I have to make this blessing on this marriage? What have I done? I've done nothing. Here I'm blessing a union, and I'm saying, I am, I am blessing you for a healthy and fulfilled marriage, but I've done absolutely nothing as a rabbi to help you with that. And I decided at that wedding, from that moment on, that I would never marry a couple unless I gave them a toolbox of really, really good things they can use. And now, any wedding that I perform, I will meet with the couple anywhere between six to sometimes even 20 sessions before the, the, the wedding, not only to get to know them, if I don't know them already, but also to make sure that I can stand under that chuppah with that cup of wine in my hand and say, I did everything in my power to set them up for a long-lasting and healthy relationship. And that's what it is. You need to have that toolbox as a couple. You need to know how to argue. You need to know how to communicate. You need to know how to manage your finances. You need to know how to manage sexual expectations, how to manage all of the various things that are going to come your way. And there are tools that you can actually have in your toolbox that will help you do that if you're both open to that. That's my, uh, my basic answer for that. Any other questions before I get to the bowl? <laughs> Okay, now for my poll here. Okay, I have two. Okay, sorry. Okay. Okay. In today's society, it has become very easy to meet someone. But as soon as I get into a serious relationship, I feel like the other person doesn't want to put in the effort to make it work. What do you do when your partner runs as soon as there's a problem? That is a, an amazing question. I don't know if I can answer this question in 30 seconds or less. I, I'm actually going to, um, I don't know who the person is, but I would like to uh, use this question in my next column. I like this question a lot, and I think it's something that comes up a lot. My basic answer 
is that there's obviously a disconnect somehow. I'm not sure what the disconnect is. I, I would have to really ask more questions to find out why is this person running as soon as there's a problem. Is this hap- did it happen once to you? Did it happen five times to you? Like, is it something that is happening to you? Then you have to ask yourself that question, which means, and I, I say this a lot, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but I do mean it in a bad way. You are the common denominator in all your failed relationships, which means if there's an issue in your relationship and you see it happening over and over again in different relationships you have, you are it. You're the reason that it's happening. So take, take responsibility for it. Call it out and take responsibility for it. So if it's happening to you, there's a reason, because it doesn't happen to everyone. The second thing is that we live in an instant oatmeal society. And a lot of people want to just, it's just instant. They don't want to deal with their issues. There's a lot of people who, um, who don't want to deal with their shadows. And I will tell you that one of the reasons why I really wanted to bring Dr. Romanelli, Dr. Asel Romanelli, who was coming here in August, is that is his main work. He works with shadows. And he's actually going to be doing a session not just for singles, but for couples as well. And in the couple session, they're really going to work with shadows. But even in the single session, I asked him to work with exactly this kind of stuff. For people to be able to work on themselves to try to figure out what is lurking beneath the surface and why they're having some of these kinds of things. So this is a question that will be great to bring up in that three-hour workshop that's going to happen here in August. Any suggestions on how to let your guard down and be vulnerable, especially when you think there's potential with someone? That's a good question. I think that you need to start off by saying to yourself, it's okay. It's okay. I'm strong. I'm okay. I can let my guard down. Yeah, you know what? It could be that it'll result in me getting my heart broken, but it could be that it'll result in me getting my heart satisfied. And that's what it is. Risk gets reward, no pain, no gain. But I don't mean it in that way. I mean it in a positive way. That if you become a little vulnerable, then you have a chance of becoming intimate. Emotionally intimate. So we need to allow ourselves to become vulnerable. So a little bit of self-talk. I don't know if you're, if you're again, if you're an introvert, you do the self-talk. If you're an extrovert, you talk it over with a friend. <coughs> And just say to your friends, I'm having trouble being vulnerable. Am I vulnerable with you as a friend? Ask your friend. If you have a good friend, it's great to have a good friend. If you have a good friend, ask your friend that question. Am I vulnerable with you? Or do you find that I have my guard up? If you can't have your guard down with your close friend, then you're probably gonna, you probably have an issue becoming intimate, and that, I would say, would need therapy. And therapy is a good thing for these kinds of things. Um, another suggestion of becoming vulnerable is to, um, is to figure out a way to not put your guard up when something happens. So if you have someone who you're interested in, automatically you're gonna have a guard up because it's just a natural response. You're gonna have your guard up. So you need to like allow yourself to say, my guard is up and now I'm gonna put it down. It's okay. And that, again, if you're introverts, Self-talk, if you're extrovert, talk it over with a friend or with a mentor or with a therapist. Yeah, I have like a follow-up question to that. And I, 
Uh, a follow-up question to, to that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It's a very good question. So very often, I, I don't always, I try to stay out. When I set people up, I try to stay out of it. But often people ask me to find out what's going on. So after, let's say, a first date especially, because they're not sure like, how it went. So if I call somebody, and they're like, it was amazing. It was unbelievable. It was the greatest experience of my whole life. I know the other one's going to say it was terrible. <laughs> a lot of extroverts who are nervous tend to talk a lot about themselves. Extroverts who are nervous on first dates tend to talk a lot about themselves. People don't want to hear so much about you. So make sure, especially if you're the extrovert, because generally people who are extroverts have a harder time with this than introverts. If you're an extrovert, make sure to be quiet, especially in the beginning. Allow the other person to talk. And that's going to help the situation a lot. Am I currently doing one-on-one -on -one matchmaking? Uh, the answer is yes. I am using jmontreal.com exclusively. And um, I'm actually going into, I have different seasons. And I'm going into a big matchmaking season. I've actually made about, I've set up about 30 days this week already. So I'm definitely... Um, encouraging anyone who doesn't have a J Montreal profile and wants to meet someone, please make one tonight, and I will be very happy to uh, to follow up with you and set you up. So, if you haven't seen any anything from me in a while, it's because I'm only in the past few weeks started getting really back onto it. I go through different seasons where I'm matchmaking, and this is a good season for matchmaking. How can we define if the relationship we are re already in with someone is a healthy one? or if it's going somewhere. Um, again, this is a really broad question. I don't know if I can answer this in 30 seconds or less. But you have to ask yourself, am I happy in the relationship? Am I, is it a frustrating for me in the relationship? Is it... Healthy is a big word because in order for you to be in a healthy relationship, you need to be a healthy person. And generally people who ask questions, I'm just generalizing here, about whether or not they're in a healthy relationship, it means they don't know what a healthy relationship looks like. And that's okay. You can call it out and say, I don't know what it looks like. And generally, people who don't know what a healthy relationship looks like is because they don't know what a healthy relationship is because they come from a divorced home or they come from a home where their parents were fighting a lot. And so they don't have a good role model for relationships. And if they don't have a good role model for relationships, it's really, really hard for them to know what a healthy relationship looks like. Call it out. Say, I come from a divorced home. I don't have a good role model for relationships. I don't know what a healthy relationship looks like. And then... Like you're finding something that you're lost, figure out what it looks like. That could be a great goal for the next six months for you, if this applies to you. I would say it's so important. If, I'll just kind of start this process for you, but I don't want to do it all for you. But I'll just start, I'll give you a little bit of a jump start. If you come from a divorced home, or if your parents were fighting a lot, uh, 
especially when you were younger and you don't have that healthy role model, you should definitely do the, these three steps as part of the process. Number one, you should decide why your parents got divorced or why your parents fought a lot. How do you decide that? Don't ask them, because it doesn't matter what they say. Ask yourself, because that's what matters. You decide. It's your internal narrative. Number two, you say the following words. It's not my fault. It never is, but so many kids blame themselves. And number three, you start the process of figuring out what is a healthy relationship. And in that process, I really encourage you to find a couple. It could be an aunt and uncle, it could be grandparents, it could be a close friend who's married, and you say, I want a relationship that looks like that. It's great to have a physical role model of a couple who can guide you and help you. What if we get our intimacy from friendships? I know this is very common today, and I know this is more common than ever before. My answer to this, my only answer I can give to this is that I don't believe that that's real intimacy. I know that some people will disagree with me on that, and there's psychologists who even disagree with me on that, and I, I'm happy to discuss that with them. But I can tell you from both my experience and my research that there is something about a long-term relationship and that satisfaction that you can't get from just a friendship or something that's fleeting or that can come and go. If you want a relationship like the movies, then you probably can get that kind of intimacy. Intimacy like the movies. But you can't get real long-term intimacy. There's something you get from a long-term relationship that you can't get any, anywhere else. And that's why I think there's such a desire and a need and I say that need for that. Yes? You were talking about healthy relationships. Some people say that concessions is really what you do. Um, so you, you do a lot of concessions, you give, you give, you give yourself, and you put your cards down. But at, at what point do you feel that the person is not using, and when do you stop? So the question was, when I talk about healthy relationships, um, like you have to give and give and give, but at what point do you feel like you're giving too much and you're becoming a doormat? If I can read. So um, there's a lot of givers in the world. Sorry, there's a lot of takers in the world, not enough givers. So I would say to answer this, relationships are not tit for tat. You don't keep track in a relationship. If you're really in a relationship, if you give and give and give, the other person will respond by giving and giving and giving. If the other person is respond the response is they're taking and taking and taking and not giving back. There's one of two things. Either you're in a enmeshed relationship and you're enabling that person, which is a different conversation all on its own. Or secondly, the person is really unhealthy and they don't know, what, they don't know how to give and that's really sad and you can't do anything about that. Now, if that is the case, then you have to ask yourself because it is you in the relationship, you have to ask yourself, why am I attracted to somebody who's a taker and not giving back to me? And why is that the kind of person? Do, am I looking for a fixer-upper model, a used model? Am I looking, you know, what kind of car? I'm, not, I'm stupid car example, but what am I looking for and why am I attracted to that? What can you do 
if the person you're dating considers it seeing and we're happy to go, we're happy go lucky and our and, and we're seeing and want to love the relation and want to move the relationship forward. Let me try this again. What can you do if the person you are dating considers it seeing and we're in a happy-go-lucky relationship and you want to move the relationship forward? Okay. What do you mean by happy-go-lucky? Which means like, it's just like a blah relationship. It's just easy and that, and, and you want to figure out a way to move it forward. I'm going to say this. If, I have, if you haven't heard this from me before, maybe this should be the one thing that you take home tonight with you. Relationships need rupture. If you are not rupturing your relationship, you know what a rupture is? Huh? If you're not break, not break. If you are not pushing, not pushing. What's it, how would you define rupture in, a, in a simple terms? Altering, pushing. Pushing, altering. Conflict, be, not aggressive, being conf- creating conflict. Creating conflict. If you're not doing that in your relationship, you are in a blah relationship. Relationships need rupture and repair. Rupture and repair. That's how we become closer. Rupture and repair. You need to rupture the relationship in order for you to grow in the relationship. So this whole idea of, and I hear this so often. So I had a couple. One of the things that I do with couples when they first come to me to get married is the first thing I do is I make them, this is part of my premarital program I was talking about before. I make them fill out this 45-minute questionnaire, and then I give them both in our first meeting a full analysis of the strengths and weaknesses of their relationship. So I have a bunch of basic questions and a bunch of more invasive questions. So the first, one of the first questions I ask is, how many kids do you want? That's a pretty obvious question. Now, if you're getting married, would you think that you have, would have had a conversation before you got engaged about how many kids you want? Would that, would that make sense? Yes. So I have a couple... About three months ago, a couple in my office, I do their analysis. He says zero, she says three. So now, and I'm like, how am I? I, I'm I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna rupture our relationship right from the onset. I'm gonna say it right as it is. We're not gonna sugarcoat this. And so they come into my office before I even put my, my analysis in front of them. I want to show them. They're all excited to see what I put together. I said, I have one question for you. <coughs> have you ever had a conversation about kids? To which she says, no, because we didn't want to ruin a good thing. Oh, wow. That's not a relationship. That's not a relationship. I don't, that's a... a I don't know what. This, this, I don't want to ruin a good thing. It's not working. It's not going to work long term. Thank God, after an hour of a very serious conversation, we came to a conclusion and we, 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 we said one at a time. That was the conclusion. But it wasn't zero and three. It was one at a time. And that's fine. They both agreed to it. And that part of the story has, has a happy ending. The point is that... We should not 
be trying to have a good time and just not rupture. Rupture is good for relationships. Got it? Rupture is good for relationships. If you fight, it's good as long as you know how to fight. Every couple fights differently. You have to learn how to fight and make sure that you resolve. And this whole thing, oh, you know, the makeup sex thing, that's, a, that's, not, fight. that's not resolve. I'm talking about really, really resolving. And this whole thing of we don't go to bed in a fight. Or angry, right? Isn't that like the number one piece of advice you get when you, I don't know, like I don't even know who gave this. You can go to bed angry. Just make sure that you resolve, the, you resolve whatever you fought. Don't let, it, don't let it fester. No festering wounds. Just resolve it. Yeah. Um, what I'm curious about is if you, if somebody's meet, meet somebody that they're seeing them a couple of times and you know, seeing, dating them, if they're going, some, going out and dating, um, at what point are you supposed to be certain if you really feel um, the connection? And if you don't, how much time you're supposed to give it and what should you do or should you Okay, so great question. So if you're, on a, if you're dating, um, at what point do you say, like, I've been given enough time and it's not working? Or uh, when are you supposed to feel a connection? So the answer is that every person is different. Some people take a long time to feel that connection. And if you're the kind of person who doesn't feel the connection right away, you have to know. And you should, you should say that. You can even say, I, I think it's great to, to call things out when you're, because that's also part of the rupture. Even the initial rupture, call things out. I just want to let you know, I'm not the kind of person, it takes me time to get to know somebody. That's a really great thing to say. Like, I'm not easy in the beginning. So, it's, is it okay? I just want to let you know that it just takes me time to open up and get to know someone. And that is a little tiny rupture that will allow the person to anticipate the kind of person you are. And it allows you to, give this, to have the space to be able to take that time. And that's a great thing. If the person's not interested, if they're, if they're, in, if they're in a two-hour relationship, then there's, there's no answer to that. But if they're interested in something long-term, which I believe a lot of people are, then that really allows them or both of you the space to allow that relationship to develop. If we recognize, the next question, I have two more questions here. If we recognize our soulmates and marry them, why do we divorce? And how many soulmates can we have? This is a fantastic question. Like I told you before, I assure you that I will do a session on divorce, soulmates, and this is all one topic. And I'm not going to answer it all. I don't want to even give you the 30-second answer to this because it's an amazing question. And I think it needs its own class all on its own. And I, I, I plan on doing that at some point soon. Uh, actually, I just wanted, the reason why I am, I've been getting this a lot. This is a question that's been coming to me quite a bit lately. And generally, if you want to know how I decide topics for my classes, I generally decide them because I see that I'm getting a lot of the same types of questions. And so therefore, I know that there's a lot of people that are interested in these topics and this is one of the questions I've been getting a lot of. Um, I feel like I am in a comfort zone being single. How do I get out of this comfort zone? Great question. The answer that I have for you, how do you get out of the comfort zone? First thing is call it out. I'm comfortable. It's okay. By the way, there was a study that came out a couple years ago that said that for every year that we live alone, it'll take us two months to be able to live with someone else. So it means if you've been living alone for five years, the first 10 months of a relationship living with someone is a write-off. It's a write-off. Great thing to call out. I say this to a lot of couples. 
when they get married. I ask them, one of the questions I ask in my initial questionnaire is how long have you been living alone? And so the first session I say right away, you should know that the first 10 months of your relationship is going to be a write-off. Because they've been living alone for five years. No, the first 10 months of their marriage, living together. The first 10 months of them living together is going to be a write-off because they've both been alone for five years. It takes time to get out of the singlehood and into, um, into being together. Another thing you can do, if you want to shock yourself, I encourage this. You can clear out half of your closet, sleep on one side of your bed, sit at one chair on your table, and really make your apartment or your living space like there is someone missing. That's a great thing to do if you want to shock yourself. Just make it like there's really, really someone missing in your life. Feel it every single day when you come home. There is someone. Call it out to yourself. There is someone missing in my life. I see you're all on Shpilkes. I'm going to end here. I know there's a lot. I'll be, I'm here. You're welcome to, to ask me any other questions you have. But I'll end our official uh, talk for tonight. It's been wonderful. I hope it's been helpful. I hope you take a couple nuggets home with you. Some things that you can think about. And of course, as always, I'm here to answer your questions and to help. And I hope I can. Have a good evening. Hi, Rabbi Bernath here. I have some great news for you. My popular four-week course, Kabbalah for Everyone, is available right now for free for the next 50 people who download it. All you have to do is go to www.theloverabbi.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and you're going to see the download button right there. In this course, I talk about the Kabbalistic secrets to relationships, to wealth, to happiness, and balance. This special offer has been dedicated in loving memory of Ellie Dorfman. I look forward to hearing from you and hope you enjoy the course. Now on to today's episode.